And now we'll turn to talking to Dan Baltz, who's the chief correspondent of the Washington Post, a very long-time political correspondent and observer, not just of United States politics, but also of British politics. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Ryman. You wrote a terrific article this week, and the headline was The Crisis Exposes How America Has Hollowed Out Its Government, which caught my attention because it took us straight into, if you like, Institute for Government territory. And I I want to begin by reading out your first sentence, which really, to me, grabbed the whole of your argument in one. And you said, which I'm sure you remember, that the government's halting response to the coronavirus pandemic represents the culmination of chronic structural weaknesses, years of underinvestment and political rhetoric that has undermined the public trust, conditions compounded by President Trump's open hostility to a federal bureaucracy that has been called upon to manage the crisis. I wonder if you could just take us into this and the, the point about this having been going on for years, as you see it. Well, I mean, you can trace this back decades. One of the people I interviewed for this said you could go back all the way to Barry Goldwater's 64 campaign in which he was obviously arguing for a much different approach to government than Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. But the real turn, I think, took place in 1980 with the arrival of Ronald Reagan uh, and his presidency. Uh, Reagan's first inaugural was memorable in, in part for one line in which he said, government is not the solution, government is the problem. And, and that's stuck, that, it. People have quoted that down the decades now. That that has been, you know, an iconic statement, particularly for for advocates of limited government. And there has been an argument both about government, big or small, that we have watched over many many years. But there's also a question about whether government is a, is is or can be a force for good, or is is in fact an impediment. And I think that the Reagan rhetoric, contrary to some of the Reagan policies, but the Reagan rhetoric turned that debate in a direction in which it became much more common for politicians, certainly conservative politicians, but sometimes moderate or liberal politicians, to run against the federal government, to denigrate the federal government as incompetent. And I think that that sowed the ground for what we have seen since. And so even though there have been waves of this, that it has gone back and forth between conservative rhetoric and moderate or, or liberal rhetoric, as you said, you, you feel this, this, there's been a, a trend of this. And what, what do you mean by hollowing out? What actually does that look like? Well, the hollowing out is really on the domestic side of government. Over the years, and, and again, Reagan was part of starting this, Reagan very much stressed an expansion of defense defense spending, significant tax cuts, and therefore a squeeze on the resources left for the rest of the government. And, uh, you know, as you say, this has ebbed and flowed over the years as, as conditions have warranted. And as, you know, as we went from the post the Cold War to the post-Cold War, the ups and downs of defense spending. But there has been a kind of a constant squeeze, um, what we describe here as domestic discretionary spending, which is to say spending other than for entitlement programs like Social Security or our our, our Medicare healthcare program for the elderly. So this is stuff that, that, that Congress has to approve regularly. Yes. And so those elements of spending have been pushed down. And the other thing that we saw beginning really in the 2010s was this battle between Congress and then the Obama administration over you know, the annual spending in government. And we would get to the brink of a shutdown and occasionally we would have a brief government shutdown. But in essence, what Congress began to do was to pass these kind of omnibus spending bills, which kept things at a prior level as opposed to doing 
serious budgeting, uh, a serious examination of what one agency needed versus another agency. And this too squeezed the, the kind of the basic infrastructure of federal government. I can't tell you precisely the, the numbers of how much it has gone down, but in, in anything like that, what happens is the immediate issues get attended to, the underlying problems get ignored. And then you put President Trump on top. And what's been the effect of that? Well, I mean, two things, uh, two broad things. One is overall, as I wrote, his hostility to the executive branch, to the permanent government, to what he calls the deep state. And this is a notion that the permanent government is in one way or another aligned against him, and therefore he is going to fight it at every turn. You know, when he came in, one of the first things that that his new budget proposed was a, a dramatic cut in State Department spending. Now, Congress did not go along with that, but it, it conveyed an attitude on his part that the executive branch of government uh, was not something that was going to be helpful to him, and he was going to do what he could to frustrate it. The second thing, Ronwin, that happened is that his transition went off the rails almost immediately. He, he fired the person who had been in charge of his transition operation. Chris Christie was the person, and, and he, he got rid of him. And they began to, to put a government together, again, with, with very little understanding or very little knowledge of who were the right people to put in jobs. One difference that we have compared to your government is that we have a tremendous number, several thousand political appointees who are at the top of all of the agencies. And under President Trump, many of those went vacant for many, many months, more so than was typical of a president. And there was tremendous turnover, much more turnover in those jobs. Those are the, the leaders who are responsible for making agencies function. Now, an agency can function pretty well day to day, but when you get to a crisis situation, when you get to you know, a pandemic, obviously, uh, or uh, some external shock, they need real leadership. And that's been missing in this administration as well. And so the picture you give, even before we came to this crisis, was one of, I mean, a lot of underinvestment. And as you said, lack of leadership. You've got some wonderful killer facts in there. I'd love the bit about um, uh, the, the, the IT, uh, the, you've got the Government Accountability Office, which, which looks at how government is doing and puts out, you know, rather searing reports regularly, saying that IT right across government not being upgraded, including including medical records, including the Internal Revenue Service, or collecting taxes and so on, which is obviously plays a big role in this in this crisis. And, and several states, I love this, putting out requests for people who were able to deal it in COBOL, the pro programming language that was uh, a big thing about 50 years ago. <laughs> yes. Um, the, the state, um, our unemployment insurance system is run through the states. And therefore, it is, A, it is varying from state to state on the requirements and the regulations and then the, the the generosity, frankly, of the uh, the, the payments. Um, but many of these states run that system on old mainframe computers. And what we found was several states basically begging for programmers who understood this now ancient language, which most younger uh, IT people had not been trained on. And so uh, you have a situation in which you are dependent Workers who are, you know, we've had 30 plus million people file for unemployment insurance over the last, you know, X number of weeks. And these state systems are handicapped because the computers are not equipped to deal with this kind of a massive demand. You've got an interesting point in all this about saying, it, what, you know, what is it reasonable to expect of government? Because this is, this is a tough problem, the coronavirus challenge. And you, and you say, look, government takes on the tough problems that often the market can't solve. So, you know, where do you think expectations 
should have been? Well, I mean, I think expectations always in a moment like this are, are somewhat greater than government may be able to deliver. I did an earlier piece on is government ever prepared for these kinds of external shocks? And and the reality is no. You know, they're 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 not used to doing what they don't do. In in many ways, people have an expectation for government that it will, you know, that it will deliver what it's supposed to do. You know, you get up in the morning and you know the you turn on the shower, the water is there, you flip on the switch, the electricity is there. Um, these are utilities that are overseen by government. You know, basic functions, social security checks arrive in people's checking accounts on a regular basis without problems. But then you get to something like this, and it requires the government, or it requires government as a whole to respond in a more creative way and to think in a more creative way and to organize in a much more robust way than is normal. And that's when you see the kind of the creakiness of government. So, and this hasn't worked so well, has it? I, I mean, I'm reaching now for British understatement, but you've had a kind of uh, President, uh, former President Obama has come out and uh, uh, talked about the chaos of, of bits of the administration's planning and strategy, particularly, say, over testing. Uh, and then you have the uh, theatre of the president uh, making up his own medicine and medical treatment on top of that. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, the, the response by President Trump has been widely criticized and for some very good reasons. One is that, you know, that, that his administration was ill-prepared for this and then did not respond in a robust way. There, there, we have a national stockpile of all kinds of things, among, among them medical equipment, PPEs, the ventilators, those kinds of things. But those stockpiles are not meant to take you through the entirety of a crisis like this. They are meant to kind of get you through the beginning stages. But this administration did not respond uh, quickly or robustly enough. We have something called the Defense Production Act, which basically allows the government to command private businesses, private manufacturing firms to to do certain things, to produce ventilators. Uh, The president was hesitant to do that. Beyond that, the president has delivered messages consistently to people that are at odds with what the scientists have been saying. So he, on the one hand, will claim he is deferring to the scientists, but he will then say something of his own volition that is in contradiction to that. Um, And so he has talked about the use of certain medicines. Um, Hydroxychloroquine, for example, uh, is one that he's talked about recently. This is a, a medication that has not been approved in any way for treatment of COVID-19. Nonetheless, he has insisted that it is entirely safe. There is some evidence that it is not safe. He has done those kinds of things. And the second thing mm. he has and done... And that's even before the, the, the disinfectant recommendation, a bit of well, soft that, power well, the US. It, the, US it, it, the US probably doesn't want. <laughs> it preceded the, the, the suggestion that we could use disinfectants so we could ingest disinfectants, which you know, a number of state health offices, when when he did that, had a tremendous number of inquiries about whether they could use this. Um, and so governors had to put out statements uh, saying, no, 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 do not use, disin- do not drink disinfectant. Uh, it will kill you. Um, and so he's done those kinds of things. But the other thing he's done is he has deferred to governors on certain kinds of things and basically said to the governors, you're on your own. For example, to find, you know, certain medical equipment. So you had this, you know, 50 states competing against one another. And probably, I mean, I think there's growing evidence that they they paid exorbitant prices because they were bidding up the value of the equipment that they were looking for, rather than the government organizing that kind of response. 
That's fascinating because one of the things that's um, on test, if you like, and it's is not just any particular government, but whole systems of government. You know, every country is looking around and saying, "Well, did they do better? You know, they were authoritarian, whatever." One of the interests of the United States, example, to the rest of the world, is the very federal nature of it. That the governors do indeed have quite a lot of freedom. Is it your sense that this? is a strength. You might say it's a strength because, look, they can make their own plans for coming out of lockdown, or it's a weakness, just as you've described, that they're actually competing against each other. Well, it's both a strength and a weakness. I mean, under our system, the governors do have tremendous power. They have what we call police power, which actually does not have anything to do with law and order. And it's it, it frankly derives from British practice some centuries ago, which is to say that they are responsible for the health and well-being of the people of their states. And this was this was enshrined in, you know, from the founding fathers forward, that states would have these powers that when, when our government was established, it was to have a limited central government um, and a more robust series of state governments. We've seen that play out in, in some very effective ways. Some some governors have been very aggressive, both Democrats and Republicans, in the way they responded to this far faster than the federal government was recommending. And, and we've seen that in, you know, states that were very, very hard hit, like New York and uh, California initially. Um, we've seen it in states that, that have been a little less hard hit, um, run by Republican governors. So Ohio, for example, is one. But one of the things that we've seen in this is that there is a division of responsibility that goes along with this federal system. There are certain things that the states have responsibility for and certain things that the federal government has responsibility for. And where the breakdown has occurred is that the federal government has not stepped up to do the kinds of things that only it can do. Only the federal government can really produce the tests that are necessary and make them widely available. States really can't do that. Only the federal government can marshal the resources um, and the organization to push forward on a vaccine development. Only the federal government, uh, as I indicated earlier, can order companies to begin to manufacture the kinds of equipments that are desperately needed. Um, and what we found was that the governors, who are usually quite jealous of their, their powers, were asking the federal government to step up and take responsibility to do the kinds of things that only the federal government can do. That's fascinating. What about the role of the private sector? And you re referred a few minutes ago to the uh, huge kind of contracting sector that actually is part of American government these days. It's just sort of contracted out. When I go and talk to academics in um, American universities who teach public administration and I ask them where their students go after graduation, they say, well, look, about you know a whole lot, maybe a third go into the government and a whole lot go into NGOs. But then an enormous number go into these contracting companies that work with the government and there's a whole career in that. And, 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 and while there's a lot of contracting in Britain, it isn't, it isn't anything on the same scale. What kind of part have they played in this? Well, they're an essential part of, the, of how the federal government now operates. I mean, one of the, one of the goals of every, every administration is to hold down the number of government employees. But one of the ways they do that is that they contract out a significant portion of their business. I mean, one of the people I talked to said that there was a point uh, in the early stages of the Department of Homeland Security, which was created after 9-11, there were actually more full-time contractors who were working at DHS than full-time government employees. And what this means is that you do not have a streamlined system of organization. You have a fairly complex 
organization, which again becomes harder to manage uh, in a crisis because you've got you've got a lot of different players, you've got different stakeholders, and all of them have to be brought along. You know, our healthcare system compared to yours is enormously complex. I mean, it's you know it's partly government and it's partly private sector. It's hospitals and doctors and insurance companies and the federal government. It is a tremendously complex system because there has never been the political will to create a wholly government-run healthcare system. I mean, that's an extreme example in a sense, but what we've seen through all kinds of agencies is that the, is that contractors play a significant role and that complicates the nature of how government operates. What are people's feelings about the healthcare system? One of the figures that always um, amazes me is that the US spends more per head of public money on healthcare than, uh, than Britain does and then spends the same again in, in, in private money. Uh, and so spends an awful lot o- on healthcare. Uh, obviously, Obama, when president, um, had uh, one sustained go at reforming the system and the insurance and so on. Is, is, is this crisis prompted any thoughts about the structure of American healthcare? It certainly has prompted a lot of discussion about it. Um, because we're in the middle of this, that discussion, you know, cannot kind of take full flowering. But there will be a, a post-pandemic, or at least when things calm down a bit, a further discussion of what the healthcare system ought to look like. I mean, one of the things that we've seen here is the, the tremendous inequities in, in the availability of healthcare, the uh, the cost of healthcare, and disadvantaged communities being at a huge disadvantage. I can't tell you where that debate is going to go, but it is a much more significant debate right now than it had been before that. Um, one of the things you, you mentioned, President Obama's efforts to reform the healthcare system and to create what was called the Affordable Care Act, or commonly known as Obamacare, that was highly unpopular when it happened um, and remained considerably unpopular through most of the, to the Obama administration. Since then, um, as Republicans have tried to wipe it out unsuccessfully, it has become more popular. I think the question is, there's, you know, on the left, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party has called for the creation of what he calls Medicare for all, which is essentially a government-run healthcare system, a single-payer system. I don't see at this point significant growth in support for that across the population, but I think that the, because of the role that medical professionals have played, there is understanding of the importance of having a healthcare system that is more accessible and more equitable. We'll see where that goes. You're a close observer for many, many years of, uh, of Britain and its prime ministers. How does the British experience look to you? Well, I mean, it looks a little bit like the United States experience. I mean, the, your, your prime minister was certainly negligent in the early stages of it, did not take it seriously. And as a result, you've had a worse go at this than a number of European countries have. Certainly, he seems to have had a change of heart as a result of his own experience with, with being infected with the virus and, and the role that the national health insurance played in saving his life, as he has described it. And he has become, as a result of that, more tentative in reopening than, than our president has been, at certainly rhetorically. Now, the reopening in our, in our country, as you suggested, is up to individual governors to decide you know, the pace of reopening in their states. But the president has been a cheerleader for reopening at a time when Prime Minister Johnson has certainly not been. He, he, he has been far more cautious about 
um, the beginning of the reopening in Britain. And I think that's because uh, of the experience both that the country has gone through there and that he personally has experienced. I think that's right. And he does he does say that, that his personal experience is a dramatic few weeks, obviously, when he nearly died and then had a baby with his partner. Yeah, that's not the whole of it. Obviously, I mean, the, the, the seriousness, the undeniable seriousness of the pandemic within Britain, uh, I'm sure also changed minds in the in the government. So how do you... It, it would be yeah. hard not to, right? I mean, yes. given given what you all have gone through and given similarly what we've gone through, I mean, we, you know, I mean, our, our case level and our, our deaths are, you know, uh, horrific. And that has certainly affected people. But frankly, the economic impact is also wearing on people. And so there is a tension between the safety of the public at large and the economic well-being of people who have been, you know, dramatically hurt by something over which they had no control. I mean, we, you know, we essentially... And we're only just other- beginning to see the rise in, uh, steep rise in unemployment numbers. We've, you know, had a whole parade of big economists saying this is going to be really bad. But I think, I mean, yeah. it, it, just getting a sense of, of how bad it, it may be and getting worse. Let me ask you finally then, obviously this is an election year in America. How does this, both the economic and the number of, of deaths, if you like, the experience of this, how does that play into this election? Well, I mean, it becomes the central organizing f- feature of our election, certainly. And, and the dramatic shift in the economy has robbed President Trump of the single most important asset that he was able to bring into the campaign, which was that we had a very strong economy during his presidency and and that change presidencies would be to risk that economy. That was going to be his argument. That's been removed. And there's no indication that um, we will have the kind of robust kind of V-shaped recession that that he is talking about. Um, so he's going to go into the fall campaign with a very weakened economy, uh, with lots of people still unemployed. His numbers, his his approval ratings have been tepid, to say the least. Normally in a situation like this, national leaders uh, have a, there's a rally around the effect and their numbers goes up. That has not been the case. He had a brief increase, but not a significant one. People's minds are made up about him for the most part. Uh, and this, this crisis is no different. There, there is going to be, you know, uh, an argument that is ongoing about how quickly to reopen, and somebody's going to be proven more accurate or more correct than the other, and 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 that will affect, I think, some voters at the margins on on how this turns out. But it, at this point, given our electoral college, we anticipate that this will be a very competitive election between Trump and and the former Vice President Joe Biden. But we have we have a ways to go on this, and some some very difficult months ahead as we you know as we reopen the economy and then become concerned about a a second wave of the virus hitting as we go into the fall. It's going to be a long and fascinating year. Dan Valtz, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Bronwyn, thank you. Appreciate it.